0: Please stay standing with me as uh, we read from Second, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging like the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this, and you know that you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing." they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved for this reason god sends him a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie so that they will be condemned those did not those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness let's pray lord father thank you just for in this world that where every day there seems to be uncertainty, that we have certainty that there is a day coming where you will return and you will crush the lawlessness one. You will crush Satan and we will have eternity with you. Lord, I thank you just for that gift, just being out there, that it's by nothing that we do just accepting your grace, proclaiming you as a perfect prophet, giving so many and just simple instructions to follow you. You tell the disciples to, to lay down their nets and follow you. Lord, that, that same instruction is for us. Lord, you tell us to fear not, even though there is evil. And there is spiritual warfare out there. But for us to fear not, because you are with us. You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. Lord, how glorious it is to know that you are beside of us, that victory is assured with you, and that no matter what stands before us, no matter how overwhelmed we may be, how, how anxious, how depressed, how sorrowful we may be, at the state of things around us, dear Lord, we know that victory is ours with you and only through you. Lord, this morning be with us. Let us hear your word. Let us let your word be a light to us so that we can see truth, live truth, know that you are truth. Truth is a person, it is you. Lord, thank you for all that you have done for us, that you have told us that was coming. Lord, thank you for what you are doing for us presently, dear Lord, hearing our prayers, uh, and, and, and and just reminding us that you are there with us. Lord, thank you just for what you have prepared for us. Eternity with you, praising you, and, and just, just being just magnificently overwhelmed by your good and great presence. Watch over us this morning, protect us, and let us hear you. Amen.
1: Thanks, everybody. We, we're continuing to look at Second Thessalonians uh, as we've journeyed through First Thessalonians and then the Psalms and now back to Second Thessalonians. And we are at a chapter that uh, a lot of times will give pastors heartburn. There's a lot of tombs that's involved with study and, and all of that because there's a lot of weeds to get into, a lot of things to try to figure out and say, how can I communicate all this to the people? And it speaks to maybe a greater thought on when we get into the Word of God. Sometimes we can hear some details and then we take those details and we run with it in trying to bring about all the puzzle pieces. Now, let me just say there's a place for this. But we try to bring all the pieces together and see if we can figure out a day that we can put on the calendar. <laughs> this is when Jesus is coming back. It's got to be. Because look, this is happening. And you now this election thing is happening here. And the way the world is going right now, that shows all the signs. And and I will tell you, at my age, every year I have heard someone say, Jesus is coming back. It's got to be this year or next year. It's got to be. It's got to be. The reality is we just don't know. And so sometimes we we do miss the forest for the trees, to borrow a cliche. Sometimes we miss the the message of what the writer is trying to get across, and we we forget some of the basic ideas. And so today, what I'm trying to do with Second Thessalonians chapter two is to make to take a message that is not simplistic. Don't want to make it simplistic, but I want to take a a, a teaching and make it so simple that we can grasp. Easily, what the Lord is going to teach us and what he wants us to be as a people and who he wants us to be and how he wants to live our lives and the things that we are to focus on. Now, as someone who spent the better part of his adult life in seminary picking apart this stuff, I get the idea of the minutiae. I understand it. I understand pulling all this stuff together. That's, again, a good thing to look at But we need to be very humble so that when we get at the end of it, we can still go, I have no idea. I have zero idea as to what this is, you know, how this is exactly going to end. I just don't know. So you will need to find a pastor who is better than me to tell you exactly dates, times, all that stuff, because it's not coming out of my mouth. All right. And I don't think any of you want that. I think if I started to do that, you would be going to find another pastor. And I would say you probably should. But this is one of those highly debated texts um, because there's information we don't have. And we know that there's information we don't have because Paul all but tells us that there is information that we don't have. We see in verse 5 where he says, look, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you about this? Well, unfortunately, none of that was recorded, that specific stuff. So. Apparently, the Thessalonian church had something that the Thessalonian church needed at that time that Paul gave them that we don't have. So, so we're not going to get all of the pieces of the puzzle, but we can get a full picture of what Paul is trying to say and what he's trying to communicate. Because remember, as we understand the context, as a young church, very young church, with very little information, but a whole lot of baggage. I mean, you want to talk about baggage? This was a church with some baggage because they had come living in Thessalonica, which was a Roman province, and it had all of the trappings of Roman culture, which included... A really strong presence of the government, but with that, I mean there's no t- separation of church and state. It was all tied together because you pretty pretty much worshiped the, the state. You you worshiped the emperor along with any number, and we're talking into the hundreds of of idols that could be worshipped by the people, and most of them, or all of them most likely, were expected to be worshipped. I'm not sure how how much they let you pick and choose, but I know that. It was a multicultural, multi, multi-religious, multi-deity uh, culture in which you, you worshipped. It's how you lived. It was a part of your day. And so this, when they heard the gospel, Paul tells us in First Thessalonians, when they heard the gospel, they responded, understanding that was not a message from men. But they heard it as it was, which was a message from God in Christ, that the gospel was for them. Non-Jews. They weren't Jews. They weren't a part of the, the promised people. You know, the, the, the chosen people of Israel. Paul, as a Pharisee of the Jews, and I was talking to this about the other day, I was like, how genius it is of God. How genius. Because he took the message of the good news that came to Abraham all the way through the present day church at that time. He chose a Pharisee to take that message to the Jews, I mean, to the non-Jews. He took somebody who was very versed in the law, but somebody who was diametrically opposed to the Gentiles at the time of his calling. And he's the one who brings this message. That's the love and the genius of God who would care for us so much. He would want us to know that we are loved and that the root of the message is that through the Jews, all nations would be blessed as the gospel goes to all who will believe and receive. And so as a room full of Gentiles, we get this message and it's so loving of God to give it to us. And we need to hear what Paul is saying because he's giving us some details so that we will get the root of the message. So if we were to take all of essentially three through ten which is where he really describes this man of lawlessness and what's going to happen. Essentially, what we have is we know that there is going to be a great apostasy, a great tribulation or a great uh, deception. The man of lawlessness is doing Satan's work on his behalf in order to, de- to deceive through false miracles, through false prophecies, all sorts of ways we know a great deception is coming. Now, our question we're going to deal with is, if, is some of that deception already here? So that deception is coming, Paul says, and all of that has to precede the coming of Jesus. From that, there'll be a great apostasy where people will turn away from the truth. Many who have said that they believe will begin to leave and to fall away. And then the lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed and Jesus will destroy him. So anything beyond that, we don't know. And there are books and books and books that have been written throughout the centuries of people trying to figure out what all is, how all that fits together to get more than that. But I'm going to tell you, that's, that's essentially what we know. And I think that's the most important for us. And we need to make sure that we get the heart of this. And our focus then is going to be on verse 7. Or at least our theme is going to be found in verse 7, the first part. Because there he says... The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, why would Paul say that? Remember, Paul is responding to a concern that they had. Paul is responding to something they brought to him, and he tells us what that is. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, this is verse 1, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled. Why? Or how? Either by a prophecy, by a message, or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. He doesn't want them to be confused and twisted and tripped up by all of the noise, especially someone who came to them as saying they had a word of the Lord. They had a word from God saying that, oh, Jesus has already come back, or the spirit of Jesus has already come back, or however that was worded, however that was presented to them. Paul is saying, no, no. No, that's not true. Remember what I taught you. Remember what I told you. And these things have to happen before Jesus comes back. Now today, just as sort of a preface, I want to remind you that because we don't know and because we have seen evidences like this happening throughout our history, Jesus could come back at any time. We don't know. He may come back in two millennia from now. He may come back in 2 minutes we don't know but we do know that there is something important in the meantime that we need to understand and that is this the mystery of lawlessness is already at work and paul was saying by the way the reason i say that is because what you're hearing and the deceptions that are trying to trip you up that is part of the mystery of lawlessness That is what I'm trying to to fight off, to give you what you need to fight off, to stand firm, to overcome these things that will try to trip you up. So the main goal of that work in verse 4, he said, He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Now, we can look forward and say there's going to be something. Paul is talking about something that is going to happen that is obvious to us, I suppose. But he says in this same letter, what we've just read is that the spirit of that, and we're talking about the antichrists that John talks about, that in this moment, these things are already happening. And, And guys, let's just look around. Let's look at the world in which we live right now. Because as I look around and I hear things that are being said, whether it's on the news or whether it's on the internets or whatever, the interwebs, whatever's happening, every we look around we, we realize that our culture is doing everything it can to take God off the throne. Right? I'm giving you a second to think about that. Everything around you, whether it says we are trying to replace God, is trying to do something to replace God with something else. And it will appeal to your desires, your drives, your hopes, your wishes, and everything around us to remove God from the throne. Now, we know that God cannot come off of his throne. God is still God regardless of what happens. But the enemy knows that he can at least take God off of our throne. That he can make something else elevated to replace God. And I've said before, quite often it's us. Right, from the very beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the enemy came to Eve and to Adam, what did he appeal to? Themselves. Right, he said, has God really said you can't eat of this tree? Well, because he knows that if you eat of that, you'll be, you'll be like him. You'll have the knowledge like he has. And you'll have the, the same abilities he has. He doesn't want you. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want that for you. And that deception has been happening over and over and over throughout time. And you and I have fallen for the same deception. Because how many times? Though maybe we haven't become apostate, which is a turning away from the faith. We have turned to other things because those things feed the idol, the God of the self. And the enemy keeps working, keeps trying. Everything in our culture is working toward this. And if it's not, if we're not careful we too can be deceived on a larger scale. I was looking at some some data. I'm not a data guy per se, but I was just looking at some studies. And when we look throughout our history as a country, we, we know that there is the claim that we were a Christian nation. That's very debatable. There was a lot of deism, a lot of things going on. But, but certainly in our era, and I'm talking about kind of not necessarily when we were born, some of us were, some of, you, some of y'all were, I wouldn't. But in the 50s, in the 50s, we had essentially what I call a moralism, right? That's the time when everybody went to church, most everybody went to church. It's what you did if you moved from one city to another, what's the first thing you did? Well, you, you were probably going to a, the city school, probably, but you looked for a church, that was the first thing. When I was growing up, and I was growing up in the 70s, That's if you moved, you went to church. Everybody went to church. Even people who didn't really follow Jesus went to church if it, if it got them some standing in the community. Pew Research says that 90% of the people in America during that era were churchgoers. 90% of the people in America would consider themselves Christians. Now I call that moralism because what we know, because we've seen it in our own times, is that not everybody who goes to church is a Christian. Not everybody who makes a decision is even a Christian. Because I know sometimes growing up, we are pushed to make a decision real quick whether there's transformation or not. And so there can be this moralism, and so we can mistake following Jesus for just doing all the right things. That's why we've got to be really careful when we talk about the gospel. We're not talking about just becoming a better person. A lot of people can become better people, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're dead in your trespasses. And as you trust in Jesus, you are made alive. Ephesians chapter 2, you're made alive. You're a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So so there is birth after death where there was no hope. But that's the gospel. But a lot of times, especially during that era, it was about joining the church. Hey, do you want to come forward and join the church? And so you'd come down and you would sign a card and you've joined the church and then you would be baptized. Some of those are very real confessions of faith. Some are going through the motions of, I just want to be good enough. And if there's anybody here that fell for that, and nobody was out to get anybody, but why I say that is because that is, a scheme of the enemy, right, who wants to destroy you, who wants you dead eternally. So if you fell for that scheme and you just kind of did the motions and you adopted a moralism, but you were not transformed by the gospel, then the call for you is come to Jesus today, like the real person Jesus, not just the church. So there was this moralism that happened but then there was a postmodernism that came. I'm not going into modernism. That's a whole part that was in the 50s and before the whole first part of the century. But we get to a part in postmodernism, and postmodernism was all based on deconstruction. We had lost faith in the ability of us to solve our problems through what we know, what we had invented on all of these sorts of things, this body of knowledge that we had. And now people that move through the 60s into the 70s are like, you know, question authority, rebel against authority. We can't know all this. We're going to reject what has been told to us as fact, even though we don't think it's fact. And so we get in in postmodernism where everything begins to be deconstructed. Words don't have meaning. They simply have usage. Right? And so you can make what you want of the language. And so everything follows that and deconstruction continues all the way to our day where now people are even deconstructing their faith. When you start questioning everything and you say, let's start from the position that there is no God or there is no final authority or how can we know? And you begin to deconstruct that, you get to a place of hopelessness. Or you get to a place of where we are today which is what I call emotionalism. It's a time where everything is based on how I feel. Everything, right? I feel like this is true, therefore it is true. I feel like this will be good for me, therefore it's good for me. I want this in my life, therefore I will adopt these things to get me that, and so I will feel better, I will be better. It's an emotionalism. And you hear this in terms of my truth, right? We've deconstructed truth to such a degree. There is no objective truth. It is my truth. It is how I feel. That is a a catchphrase in the world all around us to where you can believe what works for you. You can adopt what works for you and there is no objective truth. So there is no accountability because if you start questioning somebody else, wait, you're messing with my truth. And that's certainly among the younger generation. I know the college students have, have faced that. The high school as well, I'm sure, everyone. Well, we get to this, my truth, and I do what is best and right for me. And it is all part of a, of a great deception. And the projections of that study were that by 2017, only about 35% of people in America will even say that they are Christian. Now, I'm, I'm not... I'm not as, I don't care as much about whether or not large numbers of people say they're Christian if they've not been transformed and they're not really a part of the church. But I am concerned about the fact that truth has gone out the window and a great deception is happening. We are already seeing the spirit of lawlessness take over and take root in our own world. 2 Timothy chapter two. Verses 3 and 4, Paul says to Timothy, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers or gather teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from, what, uh, from hearing the truth and they will turn aside to myths. Now we're seeing that inside and outside the church. We're seeing that broadly, where we get to a point where we know what we believe we want to follow this or follow that, and then we accumulate people around us who will tell us what we want to hear and feed us the stuff we want to hear, and we put up a big wall to anybody who says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down there. That's not what the Word of God says. But it's the same thing sometimes inside the church. Wait a second. This is the way I read it. Therefore, it is true. If we're not careful as a people, if we're not careful as a church, if together we aren't solid on what we believe, then we can begin to fracture and begin to interpret and to see scripture according to what we like and what we want. And Paul is encouraging this young church, you need to stay true to what I've taught you. You need to stay true to what is real because you receive the word How? As a word from the Lord, not from the words of men. If we're not careful, we will take the words of of men and begin to twist what the word of God actually says to be more tenable, to be more fitting to our appetite. And what Paul has told this church over and over is there are hardships coming. You are going to face hardships. You are facing hardships. You will face hardships. And all the way until Jesus comes or you die, you will deal with hardships. And so, if we're getting to that point where like I don't, I don't want that, then we're starting to pull away from the very words of God. And so we have this this Christian deconversion that is happening. I was reading another article, and it was. Like for the first time in my life, I, I've never heard. I mean, we used to say, this is one of the things, look, when you follow Jesus, and I still think this is true, but when you follow Jesus, nobody, nobody has ever said once they've tasted Jesus, they don't, they don't want to follow him anymore. But we have some very prominent people, men who were pastors in evangelical churches for years who now are saying, I got to say, this was decades in the making where I don't, I, I don't call myself a Christian anymore. Christian artists who wrote songs about how much they love Jesus and how, and they get the gospel right even. And they come out and they say, I can't say that I'm a Christian anymore. By all definitions, I can't say that I'm a believer of Jesus anymore. And if possible, the enemy will use those who have claimed Christ, but no longer claim Christ to pull any of you down, to get any of you, or all of us, if possible, to say, "Well, maybe if they, they've been walking with Jesus longer than I, I have." But the question we have to, to ask before we go down that road is, were they following Jesus ever? Were they actually ever following Jesus? And John gives us a pretty good source of advice to go by. He, he says here, he's in First John chapter two, verse 18. Children. I love the way John, and we're going to go through John soon. I love the way he calls Children, my children, the ones I'm overseeing, the ones who are children of the living God. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, even now, many Antichrists have come. By this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. They, they were a part of us. You, you knew them as brothers and sisters. And John says, John, one of the apostles says, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. There is a an indicator, we looked at it last week, a way that we know that we have followed Jesus is we persevere. That's one of those marks of grace is that we persevere. Is it when things get hard, when things get even confusing? We know what we know. We stand on the truth of God's word. We're we're told, and, and Paul is telling us, John was telling us, hey, things are going to get hard. Things are going to get confusing. It's going to look like everybody has turned away from Jesus and it's going to make you wonder, is he true? Is he real? People who said they walk with Jesus are no longer walking with Jesus. The first question ought not to be, then is Jesus true, but were they ever followers of Jesus? That changes the whole narrative there. Because the enemy wants us to follow that first narrative. And and the word of God calls us back to what we know. And Paul is warning, just as John did, these times are coming and they're here. They're here now. We are in the last era, whatever that is, the last hour, the last day. But it's that last era where we know from this point on, Jesus could come back and all of these things will just increase. And I can tell you in my lifetime, I've seen them only increase. Only increase. And I think it's going to happen more and more. So from the authority of the word of God, I say, beware and be, be conscious. Keep your radar up to know that these things are happening and they will continue. And this whole emotionalism that drives Our desire for what we want and what feels good and what what works for us is contrary to the gospel. Because what Jesus promised us was in this world you will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. Therefore, don't be a disciple of the world. was the way we'd be able to finish that. So then he gives us, he gives us some counsel on how to handle this. And some of it I've touched on, but I want to lay it out for you, especially if you're taking notes. Paul gives the people counsel as we see some of the things that he writes in the middle here. And so he, first of all, he says, verse 3, right after, the, right after he says, um, he says, "...now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by prophecy Or by a message or by a letter, supposedly from us, alleging the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So he doesn't want us to be troubled. He doesn't want us to be bothered by these things. He doesn't want these things that we see happening, that we hear about, to cause us to trip, to cause us to stumble, to be to be bothered by this as as though God is not in control. God is still in control, and so he tells us, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So what he's calling us to in that. He's calling us to spiritual maturity, to walk the way of spiritual maturity. When you're a child, when you're little, anybody can fool you with anything, right? I mean, th- that's the thing, man. When we are, that's what we love when our children are young because we're really cool and we can do magic stuff. And it takes very little effort. Ah, do you see the coin? Look at what daddy did. Oh, Look there it is again, right? We're fooled easily. But as we get older, we're supposed to be able to outgrow that. Dad, don't pull that on me again. What do you think I am? Three? Right? So we see through those kinds of things. Paul is saying, see through this. Understand this. Don't fall for this because it's the same trick. The enemy has no new tricks. He uses the same thing over and over. And Paul is saying, don't be like that spiritually immature kid who cannot see it and falls for this. Grow up in the faith. And he gives us, we are given the means through which to do that. And I'm going to let you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 is a very familiar passage to us. Begins with verse 11, that God himself gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for what? To equip the saints for works of ministry. So there's one thing. So that we will be equipped to do ministry. We are the ministers. All of us are the ministers. But he doesn't stop there. He also says to build up the body of Christ until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's son. So we are to work together in growing in the knowledge of God's son. To know what we believe and to be be able to stand on what we believe. Then he says, Growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then, when we grow up in the faith, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ From him the whole body is fit together, knit together, fitted and knit together, by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love for the proper working of each individual part. We are to grow up as the body of Christ, encouraging each other, speaking the truth in love. Right? A lot of times we speak the truth, it ain't in love, and sometimes we love, and by that we say, well, I can't speak the truth. No, it's both. Speak the truth in love have this level of accountability, and our accountability is based on the Word of God, the objective truth of God. Now we have a base from which to work, and we are to do that to love each other, to encourage each other, to remind ourselves of how much deception there is around us that the enemy wants to destroy us. You have a target on you because you are a follower of Jesus. And you kind of go, I don't know if I want a target on my back. Let me tell you, you want that target, right? Because if you don't have that target, then you're not one of of Christ's children. and, And that's, you want to be saved for eternity. So you got a target on you. We have to encourage each other in that. So he says in verse five, remember what I told you. Remember what I told you when I was with you. Now, again, we don't have that, but we have a whole lot else that Paul told us. We have a whole lot else that God has told us through his words. And so Paul says, hey, remember, recall, think back. They didn't have this then, but we have this now. And so we have to, the call to us is to remember what I have told you. Remember what the word of God says. Remind each other what the word of God says. Speak the truth into each other's lives. We can give a whole lot of advice when we're going through the difficult times, but the greatest advice we will ever find and have for each other is to speak the truth that God has given us that deals with the deepest part of our soul. This is beyond religious practice. That's why we're, we're focusing so much on trying to, to be the family of God together because it is as the family of God empowered by the spirit of God that each one of us will begin to speak the truth and love to each other, speak the word of truth, So that we can be healed of what is hurting. So that we can be built up in what comes against us. So that nothing is going to be able to wipe us out. So we have to stand on the word of God. And then keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. Remember, the focus of this whole thing started with now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. That is, Is going to happen. So Paul is saying, hey, concerning this, he already dealt with it in First Thessalonians. Hey, there's gonna be a time, Jesus is coming back, and all of this is going to be made right. And we have to keep our eye on the prize and we have to train ourselves to recognize the things in the world in view of this. Because if we get bogged down, if we get bogged down in our circumstances, we get bogged down in the trouble, we get bogged down in, in our and are looking around at the world and getting depressed over the condition, where we get bogged down too much in politics, getting bogged down. There's so many ways that we can be bogged down and cause us to lose sight of what is, number one, most important. Number two, what is inevitable. What feels like, again, fight against the emotionalism. What it feels like is I'm going down. What it feels like is I have no hope. What it feels like is the world is going to hell. And largely that last one is true, according to the word of God. But what is true is this will not take me down. This will not define me. This will not destroy me. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's making all things right because he's doing away. He will kill the enemy. Here's the thing that I love about the way Paul says this. And I want you to see this. Verse eight. Well, let's start with seven. So the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Now here's here's the point. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will, be, will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. So in other words, Jesus is coming back. When Jesus arrives, according to this, the man of lawlessness, the evil one, Satan himself, will be defeated. He will destroy him how? Is this is this gonna be a big battle? I'm not talking about battles and all, but I'm saying is there gonna be a real fight between Jesus and the powers of enemy, between Jesus and Satan? Like we we lie, I mean that makes a great movie, right? Where the the hero and the villain come to blows, and it always gets to this point where it seems like the hero is about to lose, right? It's like, they're just, I mean, boom, boom, and it's Marvel, whatever, and they're just like bleeding, and they're getting knocked down, but all of a sudden, there's this look, right, that the camera pans in, and the hero goes, and Superman goes in and takes him out, right, I mean, and, and wins, and that, what does that do? That gets us to where we're like, the look, the, from the look is like, yes, right, it gets us excited, and movie makers know that that happens, and so they build it into every movie, Right? It's the way it works. It's anticlimactic if, if it's otherwise. It's, it's like, well, we know he's going to win. So they have it where it looks like he could lose, and he looks up, and he stands up, and he takes off, and then we're cheering for him. It is not like that in reality. Amen. Jesus shows up, doesn't even give him a thought. Paul says, with the breath of his mouth. Now, what I love that is because when we go back to Genesis 1, God created all things by the word of his mouth. And when all things come to culmination, Jesus shows up on the scene. There's your climax. Jesus shows up and with a breath, the enemy is destroyed. Do not look at the stuff in your life as being too much for Jesus because Jesus is going to show up and Satan himself will be destroyed. We've got to keep our eyes on those truths because if we don't, we will be defeated in the, in the temporary but the final word is this. The judgment is already underway. I want to quickly hit this, but it's so important because it brings us to the conclusion. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of faults, miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. Those who are, you could add, in the process of Perishing. They perished because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. So that's key. They did not accept the love of the truth and be saved for this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie so that all will be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. Now that tells us that the basis is not God giving them this delusion, but their rejection of the truth, their lack of love for the truth, the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in that God gave them the delusion so that they would buy it, bite it hook, line, and sinker. Well, that's Romans 1. That's what Romans 1, because of the deception. I'm gonna, let's turn there, because I don't want to miss this now. Romans 1, looking really at 21. This is after Paul goes through the fact that God, the fact that there is a God can be known by what is seen. Right? And so we all reject that. We look around, we go, oh, wow, this is amazing. The universe did a great job. Or look at evolution at at work. And so they suppress the truth that all this has to be an intelligent designer. Somebody designed this and they suppress that. And he says, then... For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in their desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie... And worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason. And here's what Paul's telling us. For this reason. For that reason that they rejected God. God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. He gave them over to those things they were pursuing. It's like, okay. Let's just see how that goes. And he just completely gives them over To disgraceful passions, their women exchanged natural, uh, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind, so that they do what is not right. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Remember, that was not just one The whole sexual impurities was not the whole thing. That was one he brought out. But there was a whole lot of other things listed. And those are the things that we see as a part of our world today. Where no longer is it looked at and said, hey, you shouldn't do that. But hey, look at that. Look at that. We'll even put it into law that whatever you want to do should be acceptable. And anyone who stands against that is the bad guy. And might even be punished as a crime. Folks, that's where we are. We are able to see the truth of the word of God displayed before our eyes. And so in final, the final word here is stand firm. Stand firm. That's where Paul's going next. Jacob's gonna look at that next week. Stand firm. Stand firm on what you know is true. Stand firm on what you believe. Don't let the culture dictate to you what God says to avoid. What God says is reprehensible. And encourage one another In this. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word of warning, your word of encouragement, your word of love, your words of love and grace, Lord. God, we know that we are living in these times that, that the word describes. And I don't know when you're coming back, Lord. You may come back today, tomorrow. I pray, Father, that everyone in this room will be ready that they will turn from their sin, they will turn from their love of the world, turn from uh, listening to the culture to, to interpret Scripture instead of interpreting the culture through Scripture. Give us eyes of the Spirit to see what is real, to see what is true, ears that hear the Word of God and the Spirit of God through the Word of God directing us in the way that we should walk and hearts that are protected from the deception of the world and the deception of our own hearts that are broken beyond repair uh thank you that you lord jesus for that reason come and live and abides within us so that we don't have to listen to our emotional wants and hungers but we can listen to the very spirit of god leading us protecting us father all of this lord we know came because of jesus who came and did for us what we could not do all of the hope that we have rests in this why Uh, which is the reason why lord now that as we as we celebrate communion as we leave Father, we can remember what you have done and we can recommit ourselves in our own minds and hearts to following the truth of the gospel that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. May you be glorified in us in the name of Christ and for his glory, I pray, amen. So I'm gonna invite Kevin up here. We're doing a song before we, okay. We're gonna do a song real quick. So we can reflect, we can think about what uh, God is doing. Y'all can go ahead and stand with me if you will. If you find yourself this morning outside of that gospel truth, you believe it's true now, but you also realize maybe you fell for some sort of trick that you thought you were saved, but you, you, you didn't experience transformation. But this morning, you hear the Spirit of God working in you, convicting you of sin, convicting you of your condition. And he's calling you to receive him truly and to, and to be saved by the good news of Christ. Um, then I wanna encourage, I'll be in the back for a couple of minutes here. Come on back there and, and talk to me. Let's talk and pray. Grab one of the other elders and then we will finish in a time of communion for those of you who have trusted Jesus.